following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Think about your brothers and sisters and sibling rivalry. How many of you grew up in a home where one of your siblings, one of your sisters, one of your brothers was overachieving? They were almost perfect. Everybody loved them. They won every award, and they were the favorite brother or sister. Anybody raised in that kind of home? Can I see your hands? Okay, not that you were that person, no. You had someone, a brother or sister. Only three of you? Come on, that's it? Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, those of you who did, those of you who did can all picture what it was like to grow up in the home that was parented by Mary and Joseph, where the oldest child, your stepbrother, his name was Jesus Christ. The person who did face that home life is the author of the book that we're going to study right now, the book of James. Open your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 1, verse 1. It's toward the end of your New Testament between Genesis and Revelation. And ultimately, this will be a study of the earliest New Testament epistle written. The very first of the 27 New Testament letters in your New Testament is the book of James. In fact, it is so early it forms almost a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This study in James' letter here is directed at Christians. Christians from a Jewish heritage, but it has incredible application for every believer then and today. So read with me, if you would, from your outline, James chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's do that together. Here we go. Ready? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now that was very poor. You did not hardly half as well as first hour. So we're going to try it one more time with everybody giving it their best shot. Here we go. Ready? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Very good. Almost twice as good as first hour. So thank you for that. Verse 1 actually introduces, again, the first book that is written in the New Testament. And what you'll find is the author, you will find the audience, and you'll find an acknowledgement. But what James unfolds for you and your family as a believer is some of the most practical truth you will ever read in the New Testament. This is right, directed, straight at the heart. This is everyday life. You cannot help but to apply the book of James. At one moment, James will seem like the most gifted surgeon, and he will cut away your sinful cancer. At the next moment, he'll act like a lifeguard, rescuing you from drowning in your own bad decisions. And then you'll see the best counselor or exposing your errant thinking and getting you back on the right path. And then he'll function as a, as a discipler, modeling for you how you can live for Christ in every single day and every regular life experience. James is going to show you how to live out your faith and actually have it be real every hour, every situation, every relationship. Some of you right now are going through incredible trials. Some people know and they're praying for you. Others people don't know of what was really going on and the weight that you currently bear. James is going to minister to you. Some of you are facing credible temptation and struggles with sin, and James is going to answer your struggle. There's going to be a massive amount of ministry that's going to occur as we study this amazing book. It is based on sound theology, but he is not as interested in, as in instruction as he is with exhortation. He's really interested in commanding you, challenging you, getting you to move in a direction that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not as much on learning as living. He's not as much as directed at the head 
as he is with your hands and your feet. It's not as much doctrine as doing. Maybe you didn't realize this, but our culture is based on Greek thinking. And Greek thinking was this. If you learn it, you've got it. That's Greek thinking. If you learn it, you've got it. But Hebrew thinking is more of what we see in the New Testament. And Hebrew thinking is exactly what James is going to tell you. And that philosophy is if you live it, you've got it. And James is going to expect you and I to live the truth. Not just to hear it and go, oh, that was nice, but to say, how is this going to change your life? James is total Hebrew thinking, biblical thinking, the Lord's will. And the greatest challenge for you and I will be not learning, but living. Not apprehending, but applying. Not understanding, but using the truth. Not hearing merely, but heeding the truth. You better get ready because James is going to grab your everyday lifestyle. He's going to squeeze you and I so hard, you'll have to start living for Christ 24-7. It's going to change the way you live your everyday life. James will shake marginal people over the screen of Scripture until you're proven as a real believer or exposed as a make-believer. James will pour gasoline on the average Christian and light them on fire for Jesus Christ. Let me introduce the author, James, to you, and then the audience to whom he writes, and then his acknowledged greeting. Looking down from Mount Everest, Mount Everest is 29,032 feet. That's typically where airlines fly when they're going their transatlantic flights. We're going to take a look at James and kind of set the stage for what we're going to study in the weeks to come with an exhortation overview here. But I love the fact that James himself can trump everybody. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I've listened to the comedian. His name is Brian Regan. And Bri- Yes, I know, you automatically laugh. Brian Regan will tell you that, uh, you know, men like to boast. And they like to brag, you know, and if somebody says, well, I had two wisdom teeth pulled, somebody is going to go, well, I had four, I had six, I had my whole teeth pulled, everything, I had my whole nose come out. I mean, it was just amazing. Guys will do that. So when men are bragging, though, and you're at a party, if you're one of those astronauts, there's only 12 of them, whoever landed on the moon, you trump everybody, right? Because you got a bunch of guys together, and they're bragging, and they're saying, you know, I've climbed K2, I wrestled with an alligator. You know, I was on a desert island for three days and I survived, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Well, the guy who's listening to that, who's the astronaut who landed on the moon, he's just stirring his coffee. He just, he's just going to wait and wait until finally, you know, when everybody's done, then he's going to throw out, I walked on the moon. <laughs> Trump, you're right, nobody else has done that. He now has the ultimate boast, right? Listen, James has got the ultimate boast. There'll be people who say, oh, I, I saw Jesus. I saw him off in the distance. Somebody say, you know, I, I saw him touch a leper. Somebody's going to say, I saw him after Jesus was risen from the dead in his glorified body. And James is going to sit there and stir his little tea. And he's going to say, I lived with Jesus for 30 years. Right? Ultimate Trump. Well, amazing thing. Let's look at who he really is, this man who lived with Jesus Christ and was raised in the home of Jesus Christ. Number one in your outline, let's look at the author. The author. Verse one, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are several men named James, and there are a lot of people who said, well, it's got to be this guy, it's got to be that guy, but there's really only two that stand out, that stand above all the rest, and that would be first, James, the son of Zebedee, That's the brother of John, one of the three inner circle disciples closest to Christ. But he was the first disciple, though, to suffer martyrdom under Herod before James was even written. And when you read Acts chapter 12, verse 2, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, this is way occurring way too early. So James, the son of Zebedee, it can't really be considered for the authorship. The other strong presentation or option that we can see as the author of this particular letter is James, the half-brother of our Lord. Not only the half-brother of our Lord, but the natural son of Mary and Joseph. He called them 
mom and dad. He did. And though they are religious traditions which deny that Mary had other children, in fact, the Bible is very clear. They did, and you know Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. And following there in your outline, you can see it. James is indicated here as the Lord's half-brother, our Lord born of God and Mary, but James, the secondborn, born from Mary and Joseph in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, as Nazareth is complaining about Jesus, it says, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at Jesus, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not with no honor except in his own town and in his own household. The most conservative scholars believe this is James who wrote this epistle, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And most believe the letter James was written between 44 and 49 AD, making James the earliest date for any of the New Testament books. This is the first. This is the first one. So what you're going to hear is the raw and early necessity that the early church needed to hear. What did they need to hear? James writes that. And what is fascinating is that even though James had grown up with Jesus nearly 30 years, James and his brothers, and we assume his sisters as well, had at first rejected Jesus Christ. They lived with him, but they rejected him. They did not see him as the Messiah, let alone as the God-man. According to John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, maybe they were glad, okay? Can you think like a brother or a sister for a second? Maybe they were the glad that the perfect one was now gone, you know? Can you hear the sisters? He's mama's favorite. Uh, it's like she worships him or something. Uh, he, he, he always came when dad called. Uh, he, Jesus always washed his hands before eating. Mary used to say to me, James, why can't you be like Jesus? You know, that kind of thing. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 21. And when his family heard it, they heard what Jesus was doing. They went out to seize him. They're going to grab him. They're going to capture him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. He's lost his mind. They don't get it. Even at the cross, John chapter 19, verse 25, Mary is listed as present, but not one of the brothers. Not one of the brothers. What's shocking about this is what you have in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the New Testament reader is given quite a shock because it describes the upper room. It describes all the Christ followers, all the believers present and praying when it says the, these words, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there and with his what the brothers they're all there now wait a minute you say what i mean what what happened between john 7 verse 5 when even his brothers were not believing him and acts chapter 1 verse 14 when james is present praying and believing in christ do you know what happened what happened was first corinthians 15 verse 7 speaking of the lord's post-resurrection appearances the bible tells us jesus appeared to who? James, and then all the apostles. He came to his brother first, his half-brother, James. Amazing. James saw the risen from the dead, glorified half-brother, Lord and God. He saw him. What changed James? What transformed him from unbeliever to believer, from he's crazy to he's Christ, the Lord's resurrection from the dead. Can you imagine that moment? Picture that. You lived with him for 30 years. Lived with him. You watched him minister. You thought he was crazy. And then he appears to you in his glorified form. His glorified body. Can you imagine the overwhelming answers? That's why you were so perfect. That's why you were always praying. That's why Mary almost seemed to worship you. She should have. Oh, Lord, my God. My God. 
I get it now. What an affirmation of Jesus Christ, who James, who lived with him for 30 years, could attest he never sinned. He would not believe him if he had sinned, but he never sinned. It's an affirmation of the Lord Jesus Christ that James would actually turn to Christ. And we know James was married. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, as Paul's talking about finances and supporting ministry, he says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the, what? The brothers of the Lord, James, and then Cephas, or Peter. The church history repeatedly affirms that James became known as James the Just. James the Just, because he was considered so devout, so righteous, such a, such a godly guy, very fair, and he was so trusted that he rose to leadership in the first church ever established, the, the brand new church that was born in Acts chapter 2, the Jerusalem church. He became the leader, one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 12, verse 17. You can turn to Acts and see these verses in your own scripture, or you can look at them in the outline. When Peter was miraculously delivered from prison, they immediately reported the event specifically to James. They said, we got to tell James. Acts chapter 12, verse 17, but Peter described to them how the Lord led him out of prison, and he said, report these things, who? Who do first? To James and then the brethren. James rose to such responsibility and prominence that the early church, that in Acts 15, he was the one who presided over the Jerusalem council. Some of you are going, oh boy, the Jerusalem council. What's the big deal? Everything. The whole gospel was being attacked, and it had to be straightened out, and they were seeking to determine whether a Gentile could be considered a Christian if they were not Jewish, and they didn't become Jewish in nationality or in religious behavior. I mean, the gospel of by grace, through faith, in Christ alone was at stake. And these men, James, being crucial in his affirmation of this gospel, the one that Paul was teaching the Gentiles by grace alone, through faith alone, with no additional works needed. You didn't have to become a Jew first. You didn't have to keep traditions. You didn't have to keep the law in order to be saved. And all of God's people here who are Gentiles would say what? Amen. That gospel has been attacked and these men, James in particular, his persuasive words at the Jerusalem Council affirmed that true gospel, the very gospel that Paul was proclaiming to the Gentiles by grace through faith that God alone saves sinners, the free gift of the gospel. We have today so much talk about the gospel that we forget why we need the gospel. And why do you need the gospel? Are you ready? Because you are a sinner. Can I hear an amen to that? A sinner. You're vile. You're horrific. And I say that as a fellow sinner. I, I've been now saved for many, many years. Okay? And my outward behavior doesn't always demonstrate sin. It doesn't. And I don't yell at people on the freeway anymore. And I don't point my gun at them. I never did that. I, I, I didn't do that. Um, but I, I, I may speak to other drivers. I do sometimes say, you know, that was really a bad move. You know? But in my earlier days, I wasn't so polite. You know what I'm saying? But I, it's really not obvious anymore until I evaluate my motives. Until I evaluate my heart. Until I begin to evaluate what's driving some of my behavior. Sometimes in worship, does your mind drift off? Sometimes when you're even gathered here, are you thinking things less worthy of Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Sure. We are vile sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And we can't save ourselves. So God, are you ready? Rescued us from God. God's holiness demanded judgment but Jesus Christ then became the satisfaction for that holiness by dying on the cross in our place, accepting all of God's wrath in our place, and basically taking the punishment that you and I deserve. That's the gospel. Don't forget the gospel, that you are a defiled, wretched sinner who desperately needed a Savior, and we need to live that way every single day. Can I hear an amen to that? We did it. That's what they're fighting for here, and James is right on it. Yes, he's a Jew. Yes, 
he keeps a lot of the traditions, but he said, you don't have to be like me to be a Christian. Isn't that great? That takes a massive man of humility, and that's what he was. James only asked the Gentiles to avoid behavior that would offend Christian Jews. So he said, please, when you eat your ham sandwich, do it privately and not in front of your Jewish brethren. They'll be offended by that. Let your faith be lived out in your behavior. They didn't add anything to the gospel. They just said, just be cautious so you don't overtly offend them as you're kind of chewing on your ham hock. You know, that kind of thing. So James continued to be a key figure in Jerusalem, and he did so even when Paul returned from his final missionary journey. Amazingly, Paul comes back, and he's brought an offering, and he's got an offering from Gentile churches to give to the very, very poor Jewish believers in the Jerusalem church because he wants Jew and Gentile to be one in Christ, right? Because the body of Christ should be one in Christ. So he wants them to be one, so he brings this offering And he says, let's make sure that we give this on behalf of the Gentiles to the Jews so they know that they're loved and they're beloved and they're one heart, one mind. We are all believers together. And he gives this to the elders of the Jerusalem church. Take a look at Acts 21, verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, a brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to who? James. And all the elders were present. And after he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard that, they all began to glorify God. Even as Paul began his powerful church planting ministry, his apostolic ministry, James was already a prominent member of the Jerusalem church. And we learn that from Galatians. James was considered by Paul to be a pillar of the church. Take a look at Galatians 1.18. Then three years later... It says, I went up to Jerusalem and became acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days, verse 19, but I did not see any other of the apostles except for James, the Lord's brother, chapter 2, verse 9, and recognized the grace that has been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they would then go to the circumcised to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. James was a pillar in the church, primarily proclaiming the gospel to the Jews, where Paul primarily to the Gentiles. And James' prominence in the early church was also made evident in the book of Jude. Maybe you didn't notice it, but Jude is also the half-brother of the Lord and uh, a son of Mary and Joseph and a full brother to James. And Jude shows how prominent James is in the church in his opening salutation. He says in Jude 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of who? Man, he throws out the name, doesn't he? James is my brother. Well, with all that prominence, all that authority, all that responsibility, look at how James identifies himself in James 1.1. Take a look at it. James, a what? Bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A bondservant, you can write in your Bibles, and it will be an accurate translation, the word slave. It's slave. He sees himself as a slave. I'm nothing but a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, you were raised with him? You're his lifelong half-brother, and yet you call yourself a slave of Jesus Christ. He's not going to boast in his human relationship, only in his spiritual relationship. Rather than seeking the spotlight and asserting his background, after all, he could have said, are you ready? Come on. He could have said, I lived with Jesus. Right? He could have thrown that out. Uh, I'm related. (laughs) Uh, What are you? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, you're not part of the original, you know, pilgrims who landed on Plymouth Rocks. So whatever. He does nothing of that. James could have said, you know who my brother is. He didn't say that. He could have dropped the ultimate name above all names, right? He could have. Commentator Kent Hughes said of James that he could have begun his letter this way, quote, James the just from the sacred room of Mary, congenital sibling of Christ, his brother, confidant of the Messiah. But he didn't do it. It wasn't about his personal you know, relationship, it was about his relationship through salvation. That's how he was bound. And so he gave himself the same designation, which is my favorite designation, 
slave of Jesus Christ. Slave of Christ. Calling yourself a slave, you know what that means? It means complete obedience. It means total humility. It means complete loyalty. Are you, this morning, do you consider yourself a slave of Jesus Christ? A slave. James opposes all forms of human exaltation and selfishness, humbly introduces himself as the servant, never pulls rank, (laughs) never pads his resume, never drops names, never brags about his experiences. He calls himself a doulos, a slave, slave of God in Christ. He uses both God and Christ. Why does he do that? Because in the Jewish mind, it's just God. But as a Christian now, we know that we worship a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God, King, equal to the Father, and yet unique from the Father, the Father and the Son. He's establishing the Christian God, the triune God, and he's making sure that's really clear. There were some who did call James, James the Just. Church history calls him that. They also had another nickname. Do you know what his other nickname was? Camel Knees. James was called Camel... You went, well, that's not very flattering. No, it wasn't. And he was called Camel Knees because he prayed so much, his knees looked like Camel Knees. That's what it was like. These descriptions come from the early church historian Eusebius. In the first century, he describes James' martyrdom. Quote, After Paul appealed to Caesar, remember that in Acts? When Paul goes, I appeal to Caesar, and then off to Rome he has to go. Well, after that happened, Eusebius goes on and says, he had been sent to Rome by Festus. The Jews were frustrated in their hope of entrapping Paul by the snares which they had laid for him. So because they were frustrated, they turned against James, the brother of the Lord. This is a direct quote. Leading him in their midst, they demanded of James that he should renounce faith in Christ in the presence of all the people of Jerusalem, all of them gathered. But contrary to the opinion of all, with a clear voice and with greater boldness than they had anticipated, he spoke out before the whole multitude and confessed that our Savior and Lord Jesus is the Son of God and the only way of salvation. Wow. End quote. So Eusebius goes on, and I'll summarize that James' declaration about Christ was so clear and his life was known for such virtue, being esteemed by everybody, saved and unsaved, esteemed him as his reputation was such that he was called the most just of men. It is said by Eusebius that the religious leaders realized giving James a platform to talk to everyone was a huge mistake because all he did was talk about Christ. And so they made them even matter, and this involved then they immediately sought to stone him. Now, if you don't understand stoning, let me explain it to you one more time. Take a cliff, not this high, but twice the high of these stands. They'd take him to somewhere where they could push him off. They would push him off the cliff. Then after he's on the cliff, they would take large rocks and they would start throwing them on him until he was dead. That was called stoning. Stoning. Interesting enough, while James was being stoned, Eusebius tells us that he was praying. And because he started praying, he started praying for all of them who were stoning him, Uh, some of the guys who were stoning him stopped stoning him and actually verbally said, James the just is praying. And kind of like, we got to stop because we don't want to interrupt, you know, his praying. And then because of their bloodthirstiness and some of those who were the most bloodthirsty took a club and then beat him to death. And thus James, the writer of this letter we're going to study, died as a martyr in A.D. 62. A.D. 62, after proclaiming Christ. Kent Hughes continues with, quote, James was a late bloomer, but he flowered well. James knew Christ as only a few could. For years, he had eaten at the same table, shared the same house, played the same places, watched the development of his amazing older brother, and when he truly came to know Christ, his boyhood privilege was not wasted, for he became known as James the Just a man of immense piety. So who did James write to? Number two in your outline, the audience. The audience. It says in verse one, James, a bondservant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are in dispersed abroad. 
who are dispersed abroad. James writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Dispersion means scattering, scattering. And it was a term used of Jews who lived outside of Israel or Palestine. The 12 tribes traditionally refers to the children of Israel throughout the world. They're scattered here. Uh, James, of course, is writing to the Jews as well as Gentile believers because of early persecution, they were scattered and because of real hardship that was thrown upon them that I'll explain in just a minute. Several times in this letter, he calls them brethren. They're his brothers. And James is writing predominantly to Jewish Christians who are scattered outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, around the known world, likely due to the persecution by Herod Agrippa, which started in Acts chapter 12. They began to attack Christians, and therefore these Jewish Christians scattered. Charles Swindoll reminds his readers, Roman Emperor Claudius had driven the Jews out of the Roman world. Their businesses were shut down. They were boycotted. Jewish children were mocked and tossed out of schools. Life was indeed very hard. The Jewish believers faced this persecution from outside as well as inside of the synagogues and the churches and the places where they would gather. Not only were they put out nationally and culturally, but they were also persecuted spiritually by those who were of the Jewish faith. Why? Because these Jewish Christians believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the only way of salvation. He was the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament and the prophets. This was their Messiah, and they rejected that. And so they persecuted these Christian Jews. These dispersed Jewish Christians live without being able to drop roots in any culture or any place never finding a church, often not being able to find a home, and therefore they felt as aliens in a foreign land. They felt very alone, very maligned. They were crushed under the weight of not belonging. They were crushed under the weight of being treated unfairly. And in a situation like that, trials can be overwhelming. Temptations can eat at you. Injustice and unfair treatment can move you to bitterness. And discouragement can hit you like a ton of bricks. You can easily grow weary and lose hope. They were on the verge of wanting to give up. And so what did they do? They were almost ready to compromise their faith. So what should they do? Well, what they did is they contacted James. They looked to Jerusalem and the solid, strong, first church established by God, and they looked for the prominent Jewish Christian of their time, the half-brother of the Lord, James, who then writes to exhort them and to encourage them as they're suffering all around the world. He writes them to live out their faith. Buck up! Stand strong under difficult, harsh, unfair, unjust circumstances. It's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. But I want you to count it all joy when you encounter various trials. I want you to recognize that God is not tempting you, but it is your own flesh, your own person. And that how we get along with one another, should there be impartiality or partiality, how's that all going to work out in a world that is practicing partiality? Well, James, what does he say? Well, he starts his letter with one encouraging word, and that's number three in your outline, the acknowledgments. The acknowledgments. James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, and what's the word? Greetings, greetings. It's actually only used three times, and it's three times ever used by James. Every time it's used, it's James who uses it. He uses it in the letter that he writes after the Jerusalem council. He says, greetings to all those Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. He says, greetings to them. He also, in a letter in Acts 23, says the same thing, greetings. It's his word. It's a nice word. It's a nicety. And then after he says greetings, are you ready? He goes for the throat. I mean, James doesn't spare anything. He goes right for commands. He goes right for the issues that they're facing. He attacks it straight on 
with a string of amazingly connected exhortation pearls, each calling believers to live out their faith. Live it out. James uses the communication style of his day. They had traveling philosophers who would go, and that was kind of the entertainment of the day. There wasn't much. There's no media, of course, and there was very little entertainment. So when these guys would come, they would use all kinds of style of communication, and James uses a lot of that. He uses imagery, uh, imagined conversations with imaginary opponents. He uses a lot of imperative commands. He uses rhetorical questions. He personifies virtues and vices. He uses famous people as examples. You find Abraham in James, and you'll find Rahab the harlot, and Job and Elijah asking searching questions along with paradoxical introductions. What's a paradoxical introduction? Count it all joy when you encounter a trial? Come on. That's what he's saying. He's getting their attention. He's recognizing. My friend Scott Artavanis, many of you know him, he says this, James uses illustrations from horses to springs of water, wind, withering sun, boats, fire, pregnancy, labor and delivery, mirrors, grapes, figs, flowers, moths, rust, rain, mist, Old Testament heroes, he addresses demons, the rich, corroding metals, trials, temptations, and humiliation. James' writing is very compelling. He is hard not to pay attention to. You can't help but see the practical life application. He just goes right for it, spells it right out. Many claim that the book of James is impossible to outline. Kistemacher said, a superficial glance at this epistle may easily leave the impression that every attempt to outline it must fail. Others accuse James of a rambling style like Old Testament Proverbs or slandering James as writing a loose collection of moral warnings. Not true. Listen, James, this epistle, has a very strategic purpose. In fact, James has a masterful way of putting truth into action. One of the biggest issues of our day is Christians not living the truth. And James is going to go right for it. James is extremely practical for everyone of every age. And you're going to find that more and more. Of the 108 verses in this letter, 108, less than 2,000 words total, there are over 59 commands. Are you ready to be commanded? James is going to give it to us. James is in your face. He functions like a prophet of God. He's telling these people who are really suffering, and he's saying, stand on the word and get going. He really, really spells it out. The theme of James is living faith. You might want to write it down, or faith that lives, living out your beliefs. Now, would you agree that if you're a born-again Christian, that you've been given a heart that wants to obey? Yes or no? Yes. The transformation of regeneration gives you a heart that wants to obey. Romans six seventeen. So you want to obey the word. You hear the word. There should be a desire on your part to apply the word and live uniquely for Christ in this world. So true faith is a faith that works. It works itself out. You don't work your way to get salvation, but when you get salvation, you work. It works out. True belief behaves and a desire driven to behave. James demands that your faith in Christ be functional. And in other words, you know what James is saying? Show me your faith. Show me your faith by your works. Show it. Picture kind of what's happening behind this. Now let me give you a little bit more detail about what the Jews are suffering in this first century that forces James and encourages James to write them. Years before James has written, there's a Roman general named Pompey. And he cut the Judean territory, uh, the land of Israel, and he divided it up in such a way that many, many Jewish peasants became landless. They could no longer... Now listen, this is not like today where you can get a job working on a computer. This is everybody was agrarian. The only way you could make a living was basically agrarian. And so it was desperately needed that they would have these jobs. Well, basically, they lost all their jobs. And many whom James writes in the first century then began to work as tenants on larger feudal estates and became landless day laborers. So they're working for another big farmer. And in the marketplaces, finding work was sporadic. 
but resentment against these aristocratic landlords ran high in many parts of the empire. But as you worked for a super farmer, you had to pay him your crop, right? And, and if you didn't pay, some of these super farmers had hit, hit squads. They had men who would come, assassins, who would unjustly deal with uncooperative tenants. The situation was very intense. Very intense. In fact, there was a major gulf being driven between rich and poor. So the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. In fact, the rich found themselves living on the lowlands where the rich were on the highlands. And then they would then actually, uh, they says over and over again, have to smell the sewage of the rich people because it was the sewage plant was right where they lived. And so it got really, really difficult. So it became an object of hatred for the poor and for the zealots. And because the, those rich landowners began to make deals with Rome. And the zealots, of course, hated that, any cooperation with Rome. And ultimately, starvation led to violence in the streets, injustice in the courts, trials, temptations galore, preferential treatment, longing for the things of the world, what they used to have, they used to be able to feed their family, hatred of the rich, lack of obedience to the word, unwillingness to pray because they're so mad. All of this causes you to understand the outline of the book of James. He begins to address all the issues that have come up from all these injustices that they're now experiencing. And there are 10 key areas where your faith has to be lived out. And that's the outline to the book of James. He says, look, all this is happening to you. Let me tell you what God has to say about all this injustice, all these trials, all these temptations. Now, ask yourself this question. Look at the outline in your outline. Look at the outline of James in your outline for today. And ask yourself this question. Which one of those areas will be the one that will impact you most? Which one will impact you most? Will it be, number one, faith is to live when facing trials? You know, you're just the person who just, there's no joy. It's only complaining, whining, and I'm going to get you, okay, when you have a trial. Or is it faith is to live when dealing with temptations? Or faith is to live and is alive when hearing, responding, and obeying the Word of God? Or faith is to live in showing impartiality between even rich and poor, between race. Faith is to live by its activity and its fruit. Faith is to live by self-control of the tongue. Faith is to live by its reaction to worldliness. Faith is alive and exercised in its reaction to the rich and life's injustices, chapter 5, as he's wrapping this up. And faith is to live by demonstrating obedience to prayer. And faith is to live by its resolve to confront sinning believers. This is the stuff of life. This is where we live. James wrote it to Jewish Christians in the first century, but it's just as practical, just as pointed for you and I today. Listen, friends, get ready to rock. Here comes James. Okay, this is God's powerful word given by God through an inspired New Testament writer who happens to be the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. So take this home. Are you ready? Number one, number one, letter A, James in 45 Galatians in 49 are the earliest New Testament epistles. The earliest. Now Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a problem with the book of James. He called it a right, strawy epistle. And the reason for that is he was so passionate about salvation by grace through faith that he didn't appreciate James's emphasis on works. Now listen, James is just looking at salvation on the other side. There's no works for you to become a Christian, but once you become a Christian and you're regenerate, you will work. That's the point. And James's emphasis is, listen, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, all you scattered Jews all over the world, all you now born-again Christians, listen, it's going to issue forth in how you behave. You're going to be different. In fact, the two earliest New Testament letters in the New Testament are James and Galatians, and they show you the tensions that were experienced about the gospel very early, very early. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me explain it to you. James looks at salvation uh, in light of the fruit it produces, not works as a means of salvation. And so there were people back the, today, then, and, and also people today, who are adding works, behavior, social action to the gospel, violating the teaching of Galatians, 
the gospel of salvation, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Are you getting that? That's Galatians. So they were adding works to that. They're saying, you've got to obey the law. You've got to obey these things. And, and Paul's saying, no, no, no. No, you don't. On the other hand, there were people back then and today who are saved by grace, but they're treating the gift of salvation as an excuse to live any way they wanted. So James says, no, true salvation is by grace through faith, but it produces what? Works. So true faith lives. Genuine saving faith transforms a heart. So you want to obey. You want to produce fruit. There's going to be a major difference. In Galatians, the Jewish false teachers are adding the law to the gospel. Listen, that's happening today. People are saying, oh, you got to be socially in tune here. you got to be doing these things. You really can't call yourself a Christian unless you would embrace this. And they're adding works to the gospel. And in James, some believers were making the gospel an excuse to live any way they like, to say anything they like, to react any way they felt. And James says, no, he's going to command us, obey God's word and produce the fruit of salvation through you. Produce the fruit of salvation through you. Letter B, James is calling for living the word, not merely learning the word. How are you doing? Jesus asks you this morning, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There's an expectation. If you know Jesus as Lord, then you're going to do what he says, correct? Yes? When's the last time that you actually applied the word of God to your life? Well, let's be pointed. When's the last time you heard a sermon, were convicted over a truth, and then immediately, through dependence upon the Spirit of God, you can't do it in your own strength, you lived out that truth. Are you getting it? You hear the truth, and you say, Lord, I can't do this, so I'm going to depend on your Spirit, but I'm going to act as a part of my will and step out in faith and see this begin to issue forth in my life. We are called to not just be hearers of the Word, but what? Doers. James is going to rattle your cage. He is not going to let you walk out of here without saying, I have got to live this. I have got to live this. That was his focus. He's going to hit you and I with a shotgun, making sure that we live the truth of God's Word. You need to make a practice of not just being a hearer, but being a what? A doer. A doer of the Word. Letter C. James was known for being a righteous man. What are you known for? What are you known for? Every one of you has a reputation here. Now, it might not be a big reputation that everybody knows, but somebody knows and has a reputation. You're funny. You're a servant. You're a helper. You're lazy. You're irresponsible. You're angry. You're goofy. You're edgy. You're fearful. You're worldly. You're distracted. You're inconsistent. In the New Testament, elders were to have a good reputation. So are deacons, so did Cornelius, so did Ananias, so today. I know you're going to go out to a nice restaurant, so there at Taco Bell, <laughs> make sure that as you're handed those four tacos, you know, the regular ones, the crunchy ones, that you ask your family who's gathered there and you say, what's my reputation? Tell me what I'm known for what I'm known for. What, is, what, is, what are some of the attributes that come out of me? Ask that question. Ask the Lord then, after you have that struggle, to build new habits of obedience in your life through James the Just, so that you might become Cindy the Compassionate, Sam the Sacrificer, Chris the Crazy, already owned it, Bob the blameless, or James the just. Be known by an attribute. Be known by something that is characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be those people. Let's become those people. It can't, it's not going to happen in a day. It's going to happen as we continue to depend on God's Word, and we continue to understand the way He made us, and begin to live according to the way He designed us in this life. And all of us are very unique. Can I hear an amen to that? So we'll all display Him differently. But in all displaying Him differently, we're going to see more of Him in our midst. And then He'll get the glory. He'll get the glory. And letter D, 
James emphasizes the need for your salvation to be shown. Your salvation to be shown. You all know this, but nice people do go to hell. In fact, there are people who claim Christ who go to church and possibly even this church who will end up in eternal torment. James tells us the demons believe good Trinitarian theology, but they're not saved. And Jesus tells us repeatedly, and you know this one, Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? We did it all in your name. It was all about you. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who know Christ show Christ. Those who know Christ show Christ. When Christ, the God of the universe, lives in you, He will show through you. He's too great a being to be in you and be hidden. He will leak out. Those who confess Christ are committed to Him. Those who admit Jesus as Lord follow Him. And again, you understand This is because of the gospel, not because you worked your way or were nice enough or religious enough, but because God was gracious enough to provide a way for you to be right with him, for you to be saved, for you to be forgiven. He did that. He made that sacrifice. Listen, he died. He suffered. He experienced the reality of your eternity in hell upon himself on the cross so that you could be born again, so that you could be made new. And when He causes you to be regenerated, you will want to follow Him. So let's follow Him. And if you're here today and you're saying, I don't see that in my life. I don't see that desire to worship Him. I don't see that desire to want to obey Him. I don't see that willingness in my own heart to follow Him. Then you need to turn to Jesus Christ. Because you'll never live James without Jesus Christ. You'll never accomplish what He's commanding without Him empowering. Amen to that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You again for Your Word. Thank You for this time that we've had to introduce this wonderful epistle. We pray, Father, that it might fire us up, that it might accomplish incredible things in our life and as our life as a church family. And we pray, Father, for any here who are outside of Your kingdom, outside of Your family, that You would crack through that hard heart and awaken them to the reality that they need to turn to You, that they need to submit to You, that they need to respond in repentance and faith, that they need to surrender and exchange all that they are for all that You are, and that their sin would fall on You and that Your righteousness would cover them, and that You would cause them to be born again with a new heart that seeks to please and follow You. And we'll give You all the glory for it because You deserve it all. You're the only one that can save and your only way, and you're the only way of salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.